All right, good evening, everybody. Tonight, if you want to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, that's where we'll be. Acts chapter 8 tonight. Super important chapter. Um, anytime we talk about the Holy Spirit, there's always uh, an attack. There's always some sort of stumbling block or distraction or just things are interesting that day. And um, before the teaching or before we're ready to hear, because this is one of the, well, this is the weapon Christ gave us to be effective and powerful in this world to go on and to try to minister, to try to do anything outside of the power of the Holy Spirit is futile. And we come to the end of ourselves and we end up failing, becoming dejected, demoralized. Um, and you stop ministering. And uh, that's exactly why he told the disciples that you're, you're born again. You're filled with the, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. You've been He's in you, he's working in you, he's conforming you into the image of Christ. But before you go anywhere, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until the power comes from on high. And then you'll be my witnesses. That's so important to remember. And then you'll be my witnesses after that. Wait for that. And so tonight in chapter 8, we run into um, the second time this has taken place, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about the third time, the third example we have later on in Acts, and we'll go over that tonight. But it's so vital that we understand this. And it's not that I'm trying to convince people that this is something that needs to take place in their lives. It, you really can't. But at least it has to be taught and explained so that that person can make the decision, at least know that there is such a thing as the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray. We'll invite the Lord to teach us tonight that his word would speak to our hearts, that we'd receive everything he has for us, that we'd be able to focus, and that we'd be able to affect this world in a powerful way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this chapter. We thank you for your whole book. The volume of it speaks of you, Jesus, and this is you. Lord, to reject your Holy Spirit or to explain him away is to reject part of you. And we don't want to do that. We want everything you have for us tonight, God. We want everything you have for us in this life and in our lives. As long as we're living and breathing down here, we're, we want everything you have for us. We don't want to go into battle or any kind of warfare, not equipped to be able to win, to have victory, to, to be used by you. And so Lord, we, we, we ask for that equipping that gifting, everything that you have for us tonight, whatever that may be, we pray that you give that to us and help us to receive it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The very fact that you have a desire to cry out to the Lord, the very fact that you wonder about your salvation, the fact that you even want to pick up the word of God is evidence that you have the Holy Spirit. I think it's important for you to understand that. That doesn't come from you. That doesn't come from your flesh. Your flesh is not able to do that. Your flesh does not cry out for the things of the Spirit. The Spirit within you cries out for the things of the Spirit. And so whenever you have those moments where you desire that in your heart, and you desire more of God in your life, that's from the Holy Spirit. So there's nothing you have to conjure up. There's nothing you have to convince yourself. It isn't 
a matter of how many times you pray a prayer, how many, uh, how often you do anything. It's that desire, that unction, I guess, for lack of a better word, is the Holy Spirit in you crying out. The church last week discovered a hard lesson that they're going to die for their faith. In chapter 7 of Acts, Stephen is the first martyr. It's the first time the church has seen death come to one of their own at the hands of the world. And it was a hard, swift lesson for them to realize, oh, it isn't just prison. It isn't just a beat down occasionally. That we're actually, we could actually die for our trust and faith in Jesus, for our witness And so verse 1, chapter 8, now Saul was consenting to his death, speaking of Stephen. Saul consenting means he was a part of the Sanhedrin, more than likely, casting his vote against Stephen that he should be stoned to death. We know that last week that the people that were stoning Stephen laid their coats at this young man named Saul who was consenting. So Saul is an eyewitness to the events of Stephen and watching him being... um, Stoned to death, the doctor here, Luke, now we don't know whether he was present or whether he was more than likely getting an account of this from one of the disciples, because Luke is the doctor that kind of followed Paul around. Luke was the doctor that was uh, on all of Paul's missionary trips later on and would patch him up and send him back in and, or just witness the miracles of God. As a doctor, watching Paul heal people was an amazing thing for him. So more than likely, Luke is writing this from Paul's perspective. That's why there's such a focus right here. You can almost see Paul saying that to Luke, and they laid their coats at my feet, and I watched them throw rocks at Stephen until he died. And I tell you, I was looking at his face, and it was like the face of an angel. The last words that came out of this kid's mouth were, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, which is exactly what Jesus said. You can see Paul saying that to Luke. And so when Luke writes chapter 8 here, he starts with Saul was consenting to his death. You can see Paul saying it, I voted for it. And I voted for it. Paul goes through an interesting transition here in his life, in his ministry, saying that he's the least of the apostles, he was the least of the saints, and at the last he says, I'm the chief of sinners. He had to go through a long process of understanding his relationship to God, and it got more and more clear the the longer he served the Lord. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. You can see Paul saying that to Luke. I was the instigator. I was the the sharp end of the spear at this point. I started it all. Once Stephen died, once we crucified him, once we stoned him and, and put him to death, our chains were off. We could do whatever we wanted to do to the church. They gave us letters, and we could go wherever we wanted to and pull them out of their houses and put them in prison. It was like hell on earth for anybody in the church. And they were all scattered. Remember what Jesus said, when, uh, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, 
in Judea and to the other parts, the uttermost parts, to the whole ends of the earth, to the whole world. But look what it took to get them to go, to scatter. It took the death of Stephen. It took crazy man Saul with letters from the church or from the synagogues to to go ahead and put people in prison. As this persecution hits the church like a hammer, have you ever seen a blacksmith when they get that iron really hot and they hammer that steel and the sparks go flying everywhere? You can kind of see this taking place here. As the hammer of Saul hits this sword, this red-hot sword of the church, you can see the sparks just going everywhere. A scary time. We've never experienced anything like that as a church. In America, we don't have this moment. We have moments where we're uncomfortable about our faith. We're not so sure we want to be too loud about it here, there, or anywhere else, maybe. Moments of weakness that we have. Nothing like this. I like to think that if we were hit with a hammer of Saul somewhere or another in our little church or in our nation, that we'd respond like this. We may scatter, but for the preservation of the gospel so that the word could be spread. When the first persecution came and the guys weren't filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus was crucified on the cross. What did they do? They hid. They wanted to avoid persecution. They wanted to avoid getting caught. They went into a tiny little room and they hid and they waited. And then when they heard about Jesus rising from the dead, they ran to the tomb. They came out of their little hiding spot. And now that they're filled with the Holy Spirit, when that persecution hits, it's a completely different response now. It's a response of, yeah, we'll be scattered, but it says here that in verse 4, therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. They weren't quiet about it. They weren't going to look for a hiding place. They were spreading the gospel. It was a wonderful time. Persecution brings about the best in the church. It just does. There is no better fire starter than the winds of persecution in our lives. When we're called to stand up for truth, when we're called to stand up for Christ, when, we're, when a church is a believer, a saint is put into a corner, that's when you find out who you are. That's when you know what you'll stand for, what you're cower to. There's no better thing. We don't wish for it. We pray against it. We pray for uh, liberty. We pray for uh, freedom. We pray for all these things. And we should. Christ has given us those things, and they're, they're of Christ. So, of course, we want those things, and we defend those things, and we strive for those things. We want everybody in the world to experience those beautiful things in our lives, this liberty and freedom that we have. But when that's taken away, that's when you find out who you are as a Christian. That's when you're forced into God's Word deeper. Prayer is a whole lot more real to you. I think we're coming to that place. I think our nation is getting to there where we're going to need that, where you're going to find out where you stand, where you're going to find out what you believe or how loudly you'll proclaim the gospel when you know that it can bring harm to you, not just your job, not just your friendships, not just your relationships with family. Those are the minor things we deal with now, but it could very well cost you your life. We're coming up to that, I think. So this persecution, John chapter 15, verses 18 through 25, Jesus said this 
And this is the church's realization that he really meant this when he said this. Jesus told them, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come in, come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not uh, done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated me, or both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without cause. There's a lot in that. I mean, I don't want to do a whole separate Bible study on that verse, but on that set of scriptures. But we find out that a lot of times our ministry, our witness is simply to Make sure that people are accountable when the great white throne judgment hits, and it will hit. Every single soul will stand before the great white throne judgment and give an answer for why they didn't accept Christ, because it was clearly portrayed to them, not only in the way you conducted yourselves in this life amongst your fellow man, the way you shared the gospel with those around you, whether they receive or whether they hate you, they're without excuse now. And so sometimes that's our ministry, to let people know you're without excuse. Other times it's to reap a harvest, and those are the good times. I prefer those. Nobody likes to be rejected. Jesus warned them, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If you haven't experienced that yet, it's coming. These are things we need to prepare for. I don't know that the church was prepared for this, but it's good to know that they responded like they should. They scattered. Everybody but the apostles, they all stayed in Jerusalem for one reason or another. In first, or, uh, in James chapter 1, verse 2, James reiterating what Jesus said. He was obviously there. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Trials don't have to be financial. They don't have to be emotional. They don't have to be... Persecution for the love of Jesus is a trial. And it teaches us patience. It brings about patience in our lives. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Peter says, don't be surprised at it, but also lets us know when the reward comes. It's not till we get to heaven. Nobody's going to slap me on the back today and say, hey, way to go, way to stand up for Christ today. In fact, you may never hear that in this world. But you will hear it from the Lord when you get to heaven. And he says we're to be exceeding, exceeding joy. There's supposed to be a lot of joy in the trial, in the persecution, knowing that the one that I love, the one that loved me so much, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for my sins, I'm now feeling a little bit, a taste of what he went through. And that's amazing that I'm counted worthy to be a part of that. 
to partake in the one event in history that is the most important event in history, the cross, that I get to be persecuted in a small way compared to what he was for the name of Jesus. That's someone to be loyal to. That's someone to have an allegiance to. And to be proud when someone badmouths him and they look at you and they see you as his ally and they see you as one of him and you're like him and I hate him and I hate him in my life and I hate what he's done in my past, so I hate you too. We're supposed to feel honored in that moment. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. In the midst of their persecution, they began to share the gospel wherever they went, in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. Then Philip, now he is deacon number two. Deacon number one was Stephen. Remember what these guys were called to? These seven guys, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, called to wait on tables and to make sure that the widows, the Greek widows, were getting their portion. I don't know what happened to that ministry, but I do know this. Those guys that were called to that ministry, faithful in that ministry, are now being used in amazing ways. Not that ministering to widows wasn't enough, but Stephen gets to be persecuted and gets to be the first martyr. Now Philip, just another guy filled with the Spirit serving widows. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. This is during that persecution. Obviously that ministry has gone Uh, Well, we don't know what happened to the widow ministry, but he's running for his life right now, but preaching the whole time. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did for unclean spirits, crying out with loud voices came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. Now, persecution follows Philip. Paul is on their heels. He's hot on their trail with these letters. And so Philip tells them about the Lord and they receive Christ, but you can bet Paul's right behind them, ready to bring more people and put them into jail, more Christians. He's trying to stamp it out as fast as he can. I've been in situations not with the gospel necessarily, but with the grass fire. Have a little grass fire going. We got a little grass fire going, a little, little bonfire here, but it's creeping on the grass. And then you start stomping it out, and it's going too fast for you to catch up, put it out. The frustration that it brings, the panic. Why didn't I get the hose ready? You know, <laughs> duh, they tell you every fireman in the world, make sure your water source is ready so you can put that out in case you in case it gets out of control. It never gets out of control until today. And I've had that moment where I'm patting and I'm, ah, you know, kind of panicking. And imagine, Paul, I've been given letters by the Sanhedrin. You're in charge, Paul. You're the sharp end of the spear. Make sure this church thing gets shut down. Squash this. And every time he starts stomping, just more, more little fireflies, more little embers go everywhere and begin to catch other places on fire. And he's looking around. The whole world is on fire. At one point, they said, are these the men that have turned the whole world upside down? And these guys that desperately want this gospel to stop can't stop it. It's spread everywhere, no matter where. That's so frustrating for the enemy. If everyone in this room shares the gospel one time this week in your sphere of influence, those are embers starting other fires in other people's lives, changing them. And it's unstoppable. It grows exponentially. There's no way to put it out. 
The enemy can't keep track of it all. He was too busy trying to keep you from sharing the gospel, but there you go. Every time he hammered you, you shared the gospel one more time. I'm going to quit hammering this guy. He keeps sharing. Because every time I hit him, 12 more people get saved. It doesn't work. There was great joy in that city, and I tell you, every time there's a work of God, a movement of God, a movement of his Holy Spirit, joy follows. I just love to see the people's lives that are changed. I mean, our, my sphere of influence is it's pretty small here at Calvary Chapel, Maryville. But I see the lives being changed. I see some aren't, but I see a lot of people's that are. And I see the joy that comes into their life, the the eyes that are open, the ears that are open, the the excitement in their voice, the, hey, did, I read this. Did you Have you ever read that? I have. <laughs> A lot, you know. I don't know what to say, but I'm so excited you're excited for it. I know what that's like, and I'm excited that you're excited, and it's beautiful to see people's lives being changed. There's joy. Psalm 100 is just a, a wonderful psalm. I, I've been praying that lately, and I thought I'd throw that in here since it does mention joy. It, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God, and it is he who made us, and we not are not, not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into the gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. There's a lot of joy in that psalm. Despite the persecution, despite the trials and the tribulations that we may be going through, this is always, always true. The Lord is the, is the source of our joy. He's the source of our strength, and he never changes. And so if I get my eyes off of him and off of this Psalm 100, and I get my eyes on the wind and the waves, I begin to sink in my faith. And so I'd encourage you to... Write that down. It's, a, it's an easy one to remember, the address, Psalm 100. I mean, you can't do any, make it easier than that. And it's short, five verses. When you find yourself in that place of sinking, open it up and read it. And say it out loud if you have to. Go someplace so nobody thinks you're crazy, someplace quieter, someplace alone, and, and shout that out from a hill or from wherever you are. You need to hear it, and sometimes the only way you'll hear it is if it comes out of your own mouth. Just do it. It's amazing. Verse 9, but there was a certain man. There's always a certain man. Great joy is happening. Revival's taking place. Philip, the waiter over here, doing signs and wonders and miracles, and thousands of people are getting saved, and then there's, there's a certain man. And it's so important not to focus on the certain man sometimes. You got 100 people saved, you got one person not. And all the you can think about is, why didn't that person get saved? You've got 100 over here that are. There's a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries or his magic. For a long time. But when they believed Philip, they believed his gospel, 
As he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles, the signs which were done. Now, they're all saved. I think that's important. We, gotta, we have to make notes of this because something's happening here. A pattern is forming. What happened in chapter 1 of Acts is now happening in chapter 8 and will happen again in chapter 20. A similar pattern is forming. And not that we, God does everything the same every time, but you can't deny the fact that the Scriptures teach what we're reading here. These guys are saved. Even Simon's saved. I believe he's been baptized. Okay, we tell everybody, if you want to get saved, you have to believe on Jesus. Well, they do. So is he saved or isn't he? He's saved. He's even been water baptized, even though that's not a part of the gospel. That's the second thing. Okay, so now he's believed and he's water baptized. He's got to be saved, right? And he is. And everybody else is too. They're all believing. They're all water baptized. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So were they saved or not saved? If they weren't saved and they've got to wait for Peter and John to show up from Jerusalem... We're almost saved. Part three is coming. We're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come from Jerusalem. I hope the stage isn't too slow. I'd hate to die between the time I've accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior, been water baptized, and now notes have been sent, snail mail, I mean like the ultimate snail mail, all the way back to Jerusalem, and then they get the notes, and they decide, well, maybe we better go down there and lay hands on them. All right. And so they're coming on camels, not the fastest route, first way. Of course they're saved. Of course they're born again. Of course they're saved. If they died before Peter got there, of course they're going to heaven. No one's going to say, oh, it's too bad you're so close. Peter was just outside. He almost laid hands on you, but then you died. Oh, sorry you went to hell, buddy. Of course. So the scriptures are teaching us. Luke is teaching us. He wrote chapter 1. He wrote chapter 8. He wrote chapter 20. And he's just giving us an account. This is how God has worked in these three situations. Born-again believers, baptized with water, now they get their the hands laid on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. It says what it says. I say it with the frustration maybe tonight, because... There are people that do nothing but write papers and try to explain away how that can't be. And I don't understand why all that energy is spent trying to explain away something that God wants to give us. Or that's clearly in Scripture. How, why, how do you explain this away? How do you say that, no, you receive all the Holy Spirit when you're born again and that's it. And there's nothing else that happens afterwards. Well, what is happening here then? In Scripture, this isn't a theological idea that someone, some man came up with. It's right here in the text that they're born again believers. They've been baptized with the Holy, or they've been baptized with water, and then the Holy Spirit was given to them. So let me try to explain the best I can. There are three works of the Holy Spirit that Scripture teaches, not Calvary, not any denomination. 
Scripture teaches there's three works of the Holy Spirit. One Holy Spirit, not a trinity in and of itself, as some teach. Um, I think JT or whatever his name is, doesn't matter. <laughs> Believes there's three of each. So there's nine gods or something like that. Um, Jakes, T.D. Jakes, is that his name? T.D. Jakes, whatever it is. Whatever. Um, well, there's three works. and It's simply this. He's got three jobs. He's got three missions. The first one is, um, and, I, and I, you don't have to use the Greek, and I'm, I'm very careful about using Greek and Hebrew because you don't have to know Greek and Hebrew to understand Jesus Christ or his word. Okay, that being said, the, the Bible says this, that he comes with us, he comes in us, he comes upon us. And, and there are many scholars that just ignore the fact that those are three different words. So we go to the Greek, if we have to explain it to scholars, that there's three different things in the Greek, para, and an epi. And they're used differently. Those are tenses of what the Holy Spirit does. In John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17, we have two of them. And I will pray, Jesus is speaking, so it's authoritative, right? And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with, that's para, you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with, para, you, and shall be in, and you. Okay? <laughs> I know. I don't want to have to do this, but I have to. He's going to be with you. He comes alongside each and every person in this world to convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit is present in this world, coming alongside everybody. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. You are a sinner. You have broken fellowship with God. Christ is the way. The Holy Spirit's mission, his first mission, is to be with you, to be para. Okay? His second work, once you believe on Christ to be your Lord and Savior, he comes in you. N, in you. And that is the regeneration. That is when he begins to change us and conform us into the image of Christ. It's a work that he begins to do in us. That was happening. When Jesus breathed on the, breathed on the disciples, received the Holy Spirit, he was in them. But this is before he ascended. Before he ascended, he said, now after I've breathed on you and the Holy Spirit is in you, I want you to wait in Jerusalem for the filling of the Holy Spirit because he's going to come upon you. That's the difference. This epi, this is the one that everybody has a hard time with, this epi. When he talks about you're going to have streams of living water flowing from you, that's the epi, that's the upon, that's the moving of the Holy Spirit, not just working on you, but coming out of your life to other people. Yes, the disciples were saved. Yes, they were born again. Yes, they're filled with the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is working in them. But that's a work in progress, and that's for them. Now, wait in Jerusalem for the coming upon of the Holy Spirit so that you can be used, so that other people can be blessed. In Acts chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus, more authoritative. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days from now, or not many days hence. Three verses later, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost comes upon you. Epi. You'll know it. It's important. 
It's the difference between you having a Holy Spirit working in you and you trying to minister without the upon, without him ready to do that, to flow from you to other people. It isn't three separate gods. It's just three separate works of the same Holy Spirit. A safe prayer, if you're concerned about doctrine or whether a certain denomination you came from is going to accept you if you believe this, just ask Jesus to give you everything that he has for you. I mean, I hate to water it down like that because I don't think we have to be afraid of saying, God, baptize me with the Holy Ghost. Let's get King James on us now, you know. Baptize me with the Holy Spirit. Give me all the gifts that you have for me. I want rivers of living water not only working in me or bubbling up inside of me, but flowing from my life to other people. I want to be a transformer. You want to be an influencer? Forget TikTok. Be baptized with the Holy Spirit and influence everybody around you. I don't know. Every time I'm around this person, I just feel so refreshed. That's the Holy Spirit flowing from you. That's what we want. I'm very passionate about this. It's, it's, it's been everything in my life. I love being saved. I love God working in my life. But when he baptized me with the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden, when I taught, it wasn't, it wasn't dumb anymore. It was from my heart. It was from God working through me. I get out of the way, and I let the Holy Spirit just do what he wants to do. And it's, it's been amazing. Being led by the Holy Spirit, saying, go here, go there. It's been Unbelievable. I can't imagine trying to navigate this world without that still small voice leading me and then the Holy Spirit flowing from me to other people. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, concerning the laying on of hands. Just so we didn't think, well, this is the apostles. This is the apostles. This is Peter. This is him laying hands. Well, this is Paul. We're going to skip Peter, we're going to skip all the other 12, and we're going to go just right to Paul, okay? Some think he was the replacement for Judas. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, but I'm just getting rid of the apostles at this point and getting to another example, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Paul is writing to the young pastor Timothy, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is also in you. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. We know verse 7. We quote that all the time. God has not given me a spirit of, you know, I'm not a weenie. <laughs> That's a paraphrase. I'm a spiritual crazy man, you know, for God. He's given me that kind of power and love and a sound mind, not a spirit of fear. It's the verse before Timothy, and, and this helps with those who write papers against this. Look, Paul told Timothy to stir up a gift that was given to him by God. That means Timothy needed to stir up a gift that was given to him by God, which is weird. Because they think that once the gift is given, you just kind of have to do it. There's nothing you can do about it. You just do the gift. Do the gift. No, you don't have to do the gift. The scriptures tell us that the uh, prophecy is subject to the prophet. I, he doesn't have to open his mouth. We, we, we learned that with um, um, Jonah. 
Jonah was the prophet. He loved to tell everybody about God's word, tell it was to Nineveh. And he says, no, I'm not going to go tell Nineveh anything. Now, God made him do it. But he didn't have to. Timothy has to be reminded to stir up the gift which God gave him from the laying on of hands. So stir it up, Timothy. Paul notices in Timothy's life, he's not doing what God's called him to do, what he's gifted him to do. You're not doing it. Stir it up, buddy. It means I need to stir up my gift. I need to remind myself, you, don't, you need to go do that. If you don't go do that, you're not doing what God's made you to do. Go do it. It's very important. When we get this understanding that you've been saved for a purpose, that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit or baptized with the Holy Spirit, you've been given gifts of the Holy Spirit, you need to exercise those gifts. We need to do that. This church needs to be a healthy, strong body. You need to stir up those gifts. You need to start exercising them, start using them. I don't know what my gift is. God will let you know. Don't worry. Ask him. Finally, Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. And it happened. While Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, followers of Jesus, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So he's talking to these guys. Hey, brothers, disciples, fellow Christians. And through the conversation, Paul's starting to scratch his head saying, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit when you first got saved? Because in other words, it ain't showing. Something's missing. They said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And that is why I am so passionate tonight. Nobody in this room is going to walk out of here saying, I didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. I didn't know nothing about it. You definitely know now. And whether you believe it or exercise it or ask for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's on you. It ain't on me anymore. There are entire denominations out there that do not believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today. Christians, that is a powerless church. That is a church who have got their teeth knocked out. And they're just gumming the world. It's frustrating. It isn't a Calvary thing. It isn't a Pentecostal thing. It is a Bible thing. It's biblical. We just read three different accounts from three different sections in Acts, and the book of Acts has never ended. We all agree on that. It's in Acts chapter 1, it's in Acts chapter 8, and now we just read it's Acts chapter 19. Here we go. Ready? We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him whom would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, some take that and say, and it's true, well, maybe they didn't even know Jesus was even, came and gone. You know, maybe they didn't even know he died on the cross. Maybe he didn't know that he was the Savior. So they were just kind of John's disciples, not really Jesus. Fine, fine. But right now, they believe and were baptized in water, in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they're believers now, right? Verse 6. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. So no matter what you believe or what you came up with up until that point, the last verse there that we just read, well, second to last, verse 6, 
after they're baptized and believe on Jesus for their salvation, Paul lays hands on them and they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. They began to do gifts of the Spirit were given to them. You need, we need to believe God's word. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. So, <laughs> where are we in verse uh, 14? Is that where we are? 18, thank you. So the Holy Spirit came upon them. Verse 18, when Simon, this magic guy, you know, watch me pull a rabbit on my hat. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter goes off on him. I'm warning you. This is a believer. He's dumb. He doesn't know. I'm giving him a break here, okay? But Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit, having a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, really lays into him. And now, I have to ask myself, how would I have received this? Because it clearly stated earlier in well, one page over, that he believed also like everybody else, and he was walking with them, and he was watching. He saw this, the laying out of hands, and the Holy Spirit's giving him, whoa, I want, to, I want that power. How much does that cost? And Peter's not happy. Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this manner. For your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this, your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. It's not very seeker-friendly, Peter. The guy's just trying to work things out, you know. And yet, he's exactly right. And that's exactly what Simon needed to hear. Sometimes when we come to know Jesus Christ, we bring a lot of baggage with us sometimes or ideas about things. And, and yeah, I'm a born-again believer, and I'm going to bring my worldly knowledge and my influence with me as I come into this new faith that I have. I'm going to start working it. I'm going to start working this faith like I've done everything else in the past. No, Peter says, and Peter has to be blunt with him and harsh with him. You are thinking about this wrong. You are thinking about it like it's a magic trick like you used to do before. Get that out of your mind. That's all garbage from the past. You need to ditch all of it. You need to ask God for forgiveness. You need to spend a lot more time on your knees before you even think about laying hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit. That's okay. Simon needed to hear that. Simon needs to ditch all that old stuff that he brought with him. His influence, his magic, his tricks. This isn't one of those things. You used to make money off that. You used to make a living off that, Simon. This is not what we do. It's good. It's a harsh criticism. It's a very strong rebuke. It comes from the Holy Spirit within Peter to him. Holy Spirit knows exactly what Simon needs to hear, and it worked. Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. You know, that's his way of saying, oh, I'm sorry, you know. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of, Samar of the Samaritans. Amazing. Powerful section here, you know. Anyway. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. That's nice. 
Anybody want direction from God like that? That would be nice, wouldn't it? Just send an angel and tell me what to do tomorrow. Don't make me try to figure it out. Just a bright, shiny white guy landing on my bed in the morning just saying, okay, before you get up, here's what you're going to do. That's all I ask. You know? It doesn't happen all the time. These are rare moments. But we are working, I mean, we are moving fast and furious now with the church. The church is just exploding. And so they got angels that are sending messages to Philip. Arise and go towards the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. Now, that doesn't mean much to us, except that Philip is in the middle of a supernatural, amazing, spirit-filled revival. Thousands getting saved. Miracles are being done. Simon's being rebuked. The big guys from Jerusalem just came and examined his ministry, laid hands on guys. They all received. I mean, it's a big deal. And the whole the, the angel shows up and says, now I want you to leave this exploding ministry. And I want you to go down here on this no place road in the middle of nowhere, this desert place. I want you to stand there. Simon, uh, Philip says, okay. And he went. That's very important. We all need to take note of that. God needs to be able to tell us, do this or do that. And we need to go, regardless of what it looks like. Why would you want me to leave this thriving ministry and go over here and stand in a desert that leads to nowhere? What, what you, no questioning. Philip doesn't say, why? What's going on? Are you sure? Who's going to replace me? How are these sheep going to get taken care of? He just says, oh, okay. Sure, why not stand in the middle of nowhere in the desert and stand by a road that goes down to Gaza? Makes total sense. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. So he's, he's, he's in that. You know, he's, a, he's been brought into the Jewish faith. So he's going to Jerusalem like he's supposed to. He's a black guy, if you didn't pick up on that. He's an Ethiopian. Sometimes we kind of white out the scriptures. We really need to work on that. They're not all white. Jesus wasn't white. I mean, I probably don't do that, but we got to be. Jesus is Middle Eastern. Black curly hair, you know, dark complected. This guy's, he's black. He's from Ethiopia. And Philip runs up to him and says, well, well, I don't want to spoil it. Let's read it. He came to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in this chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, this is probably something he picked up. Ever go to a conference and you see a great book? Oh, yeah. And you get that book and you buy it. And it's, I don't read, but I'm excited that I'm at a conference, so I bought a book. I did that all the time. I come up with these books. They just sit on my shelf. I never read them. Anyway, this guy's good. He's reading it. He's opening the scroll of Isaiah that he just bought in Jerusalem. Genuine Isaiah scroll on super cool parchment, you know. And he's reading it, but he doesn't understand what he's reading. So you imagine you're in a chariot. Everybody's riding. Nobody's really excited about the trip except you, and you're reading your thing. You're probably reading it out loud, and and Isaiah, and he's reading Isaiah, I don't get this. Who is this guy talking about? Is he talking about himself? You ever read the Bible that way? Where you're like, I don't understand what he's saying. Are you talking about this? Are you talking about that? Oh, I wish I'd understood this, right? All the time I have those moments. And he's praying more than likely, God, I don't get this. And lo and behold, the number one minister in all of Samaria is standing by the road 
and overhears him speak. Are you reading Isaiah? Yeah, I don't understand it. The greatest pastor, the greatest revival in Samaria is standing on the desert saying, oh, let me help you understand that. Give you a personal Bible study on your, on your sled here, you know? God is so good. He's so amazing, you know? Just when you think there's no hope, when you don't think there's any way, there's any possibility, and you're crying out to God saying, I think this is impossible. I can't understand Isaiah. I don't understand God's word. I'm going back to Ethiopia. None of them know any of this stuff. I want to go back to Jerusalem and ask the guys with the big hats, because those are the guys that know everything, but I've got to go back and take care of Candace and do her stuff and job, and I don't understand what I'm reading. God, help me. And there's Philip. What you reading? You know? I love this. He's so caring. Talk about leaving the 99 to reach the one, right? The Spirit says to Philip, go near and overtake the chariot. So run up to this. (laughs) Can you imagine seeing the president going down in his limousines? And the Holy Spirit says, now run up to his limousine and tap on the glass. Be the last thing you probably did. This guy's a bigwig. He runs up to the chariot. And he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. So he's reading out loud. And he says... (laughs) Do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he was reading was this. Look what he happened to be reading while Philip was walking by or standing there or whatever he was doing. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? What is he talking about here? You know what that scripture is telling this eunuch? When, when the eunuch figures this out, when this gets explained to him, this is the eunuch's call. Upon his life. The scripture he can't comprehend is the one that says, Philip, the one you just heard about in Jerusalem, the Messiah that everybody's talking about, but nobody mentioned his name, Jesus. When you figure out who the Messiah is, I want you to declare his generation. I want you to share it to everybody. He doesn't understand his own call. He's getting his calling from God. He doesn't get it. And Philip comes up alongside of him and asks him, do you understand? I don't understand what he's talking about. Is it him or is it So the eunuch answers, I don't know what he's talking about. Who is it? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? I believe what you said, Philip. I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe he's the Messiah that I've been waiting for and they've been waiting for. I believe this is a call in my life. What else do I have to do to be water baptized? And Philip just said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. So he's a born-again believer. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Philip said, let's go get wet. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. That's a sweet time. That's a moment that we get to be a part of that nobody else... 
Nobody else was there but these two guys and whoever his entourage was. And because Luke took the time to write this down, we can all see this in our heads, can't we? I can picture it. This sweet moment with Philip. Philip saying, I can't believe I'm baptizing this guy. You know, that's great. Philip ain't seen nothing yet. Look what happens to Philip. Now, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. The same word that's used for rapture. The same thing that happened before Noah's flood. When, uh, oh, what's his name? Um, Enoch walked with God and was not taken away, caught up. (laughs) They come out of the water, and the Holy Spirit, good job, Philip, moves him supernaturally, catches him up, takes him up, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities until he came to Caesarea. That's one of the weirdest scriptures you'll ever read. It is. He comes out of the water. Hey, I baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Congratulations. He's gone. And the eunuch's going, that was crazy. You know? And Philip lands someplace, you know, do you know Jesus? And he just starts <laughs> preaching the gospel. This is crazy. We read this stuff and we know this stuff and we know these stories, but you've got to put yourself in that situation. This has not stopped. This hasn't ended. I've had very few moments like this. I've had a few like this. You've all heard the stories. I won't share them with you again. Moments where the Holy Spirit says, I want you to go talk to this guy, do this, that, and I do. And it's a miraculous moment, my moment. And I've had several opportunities like that. He wants that for all of us, every single one of us. If we'll only be like that, Philip, and say, hey, I need you to go over here. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. What a sweet chapter. It's a sweet chapter because... We just read about the gift that you wanted to give us, the helper that you wanted to send to us, the Holy Spirit, which is your spirit. Why would we not want everything you have for us? So God, we pray that although we're saved, we're born again believers, and we love and trust in Jesus for our salvation, and he, the Holy Spirit, is working in us. We know that, that we're being conformed into your image. We want that upon also. We want that epi. We don't know how to ask for it. We don't know how it works. We don't know whether it's laying on of hands or whether it's like when Peter's preaching, the Holy Spirit just fell upon these guys in the middle of his sermon. We know you can do whatever you want to do, however you want to do it. Whatever you want to do, would you do it already? We desire it. We want it. We want to receive it. We want all the gifts that you have for us. We don't believe that any of them are not for today. We believe you can do anything, anytime you want to do them, and and we want to be useful tools in your hands. So, Lord, fill us with your Spirit. Baptize us with your Spirit. Baptize with your Holy Ghost. However the words need to be said, we know in our hearts that we want everything you have for us, and we make ourselves available. We'll take it. We'll take it, whatever. We receive it with gladness, and then use us, God. Help us to be so filled with the Spirit that when you speak, when you minister to us or share and whisper in our ears or whatever to go, do, say, that we would open our mouths like Philip opened his mouth, that we would go like Philip went. We'd be obedient to you and just be totally blessed by the fruit you bring into our lives and by the people we're able to touch. 
Thank you for even wanting to use us. We know that the angel could have literally just went and talked to this Ethiopian, but instead the angel told Philip to go talk to the Ethiopian. We know that we're middlemen, that we're not necessary, but you want to use us. And we're thankful for that. We don't take that for granted. Lord, bless these folks as they go tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. We'd be glad to pray with you.